This is episode 223 with Doctor of Physical Therapy, coach, former track and cross-country athlete for the College of William and Mary, and Category 2 cyclist, Mr. Jimmy Picard. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to will help you better rehabilitate your next running injury. My guest and I are going to talk more about effective injury treatment, why certain strategies are passive, and how active treatment strategies are what really get you back to running. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer, strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. For more than a decade, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you. And then they offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. You can now save $200 on their ultimate plan, plus their free inner age test, with code STRENGTHRUNNINGGIFT. Or you just can get 25% off site-wide with code STRENGTHRUNNING. Go to insidetracker.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING to see all the details. We're also supported by Elemental Labs, which makes my favorite salty electrolyte mix. Go to drinklmnt.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING and you can sign up for a free sample pack. You can see what flavors you like. My two favorites are citrus and watermelon. You'll get eight different packets, four flavors, and you'll only have to pay five bucks for shipping here in the U.S. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. All right, my guest today is Jimmy Picard, a doctor of physical therapy in Salt Lake City, Utah, who specializes in treating endurance runners and mountain athletes and helping them get back on the trail. Jimmy was a competitive distance runner at the College of William and Mary, was able to become a Cat 2 cyclist in only two seasons, and he has the trifecta of experience and qualifications that give him very valuable insight into effective treatment for runners. He's not only a high-level PT, but he specializes in runners, and he has the background of a competitive runner himself. In this discussion, we're going to talk more about various techniques that you might experience in the physical therapy office, dry needling, massage, cupping, electric stim. We'll discuss the promises of each and what they do in reality. Then we'll move on to the top three most effective rehabilitation techniques and how to think most productively about returning to running post-injury. 
If you'd like Strength Running's best advice on injuries, don't miss our free series at strengthrunning.com prevention. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Jimmy Picard. Hey, Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Jason. Great being here. Well, I'm pretty excited to chat with you. You have a very interesting background. You're a doctor of physical therapy. You have this former life as a collegiate cross-country and track runner. You became a Cat 2 cyclist after uh, your post-collegiate days when you were were training after college. And you also specialize in treating runners and running injuries. So I think this is going to be really interesting with your perspectives and Hopefully, we can have a really productive conversation about how runners can successfully rehabilitate an injury. Yeah, awesome. Uh, thanks for the intro. And yeah, I'm super excited to kind of talk about physical therapy. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, it's something that I think can, that we all need, right? And that's why I got into physical therapy was as a runner, we all get injured. I think something like 70, the, yeah, some, the current rate is 70% of all injuries or all runners get injured. Right. And so I think we all have to go to the therapist at some time. And I think it's important to know what to look out for and kind of what to expect when you go to physical therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always blown away by the annual injury rate among runners because, you know, runners, we think about this sport as it's not a contact sport. You know, you're not out there getting tackled by, you know, your fellow runners but I actually do think running is a contact sport. Every step you take is a lot of impact force. It's you contacting the ground. And there's a lot of jarring impact with that. And if we're not ready for it, it can certainly be a little bit too much for us to handle. So, you know, let, let's pretend a runner comes into your office and uh, or, or let's even take a step back. A runner feels an injury happen. Let's start with what you shouldn't do. Now, I assume you shouldn't just sit on the couch doing nothing. That's not recommended, is it? No, definitely not. So I think <laughs> there's there's often like two approaches that most runners take and they're the extremes, right? You have the person who gets super fearful, they're worried, and they just completely shut it down, right? They sit on the couch. And when we follow that road, we just end up weak and deconditioned and then kind of prolonging an injury because, yeah, our tissues are getting weak, they're getting deconditioned, and they're more likely to be sensitive because of that. Then you have the other end of the, uh, the other side of the coin and it's, you know, we just keep pushing through it and we don't take a break and we say, oh, this will get better. And we all know how that ends up. It's something small turns into something big. So I think the, the first step is, yeah, recognizing that you are injured and kind of figuring out where it is on that spectrum. Is it something that you can run through? Cause sometimes we can, if it's, if it's, you know, it's not getting worse as you run the next day. It feels about the same. Those are, you can keep running often, but when it's progressively getting worse, then I think it's, it's time to talk to somebody. Yeah. So let's talk about when someone comes into your office, you know, when we initially started talking about this conversation, there were a couple treatment modalities that I wanted to talk about that may not be as helpful as we think they are. So I'd love to go through some of the things that runners might experience out there in the world when it comes to treatment, when it comes to recovery, and get your thoughts on, you know, what the promises of these treatment methods and then what the reality is. And maybe we can start with something that uh, I've actually never had done myself. I feel like it's gotten more popular over, 
you know, maybe the last 10 years or so, which is dry needling. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this is, what it kind of pretends or, or hopes to do for runners, and then maybe, you know, what the actual science says? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so dry needling, yeah, over the past 10 years, I feel like it's just blown up. And he, there was a period there where like all the PTs are rushing out to get certified, to get dry, uh, trained in dry needling. Uh, back maybe five years ago, the clinic I was working for, they were paying for all of us to go get certified to dry needle. Um, and the problem with dry needling is kind of the more I've been out as a PT working with athletes, you see that it offers patients this idea of like a quick fix, right? This, this, this hope of, I'm going to stick this needle in, in your calf and it's going to cure your calf injury. Um, and when we look at the science behind things like dry needling, there's, there's not much there. Okay. So if we back up and we say, okay, this patient comes in with, let's say a, a strained calf, and somebody offers you dry needling. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to kind of assess your calf. They're going to try to find a trigger point and they're going to try to take this acupuncture needle and they're going to poke it in that trigger point in hopes that they're going to release that trigger point uh, with the idea that if we release that trigger point, now your pain will go away. And so that's, that's the theory behind it. In reality, the, if we start at the very beginning of this premise, the premise that there is something called a trigger point is questionable, right? If we look at the science behind that, there is no evidence supporting that they exist. And there's no evidence supporting that dry needling can relieve or release this trigger point. And so it's kind of a little bit backwards where uh, we're doing this intervention where there's no basic science to support it. Um, and in my experience. I've had it done myself, like on myself for injuries in the past. And I remember going to the clinic, super excited. I was actually training for Boston Marathon. It was maybe like three weeks before Boston, had a calf strain. PT offered a lot of hope saying this would take care of it. I got dry needled and I drove home that day. And I had to get call my girlfriend from the driveway to get her to help me walk to the couch because my calf was so sore and so locked up. I just didn't respond well to it. And then there I was like laying on the couch trying to ice it because it hurt so bad for the next 24 hours uh, and did not get to compete in the race. I don't think anything would have gotten me to heal this calf strain in that short amount of time. But that's the problem with it is it's like this false, it's setting up false expectations of this hope for a quick fix. Um, and I think there's a lot of PTs that do use it without giving that false hope. But at the, at the end of the day, I just think we could be doing a lot better things with our time. I love you describing the mechanism through which dry needling is supposed to actually be helpful. Because I don't actually understand that, <laughs> you know, I love understanding how things work. And, and usually when it comes to exercise physiology questions, you know, it's sort of understanding what's going on in the body and the cause and effect of different stimuli, right? And so with you describing putting a needle into a muscle to hopefully get at some trigger point, that intuitively, even with all everything I've learned through my own reading and, and interviewing great guests like you, 
that still just doesn't really make sense to me. Is, is there any additional sort of mechanistic explanation as to why dry needling is supposed to work? Yeah, great question. Because there actually is. So other uh, other theories would be that you're going to go in there and you're going to kind of irritate the tissue, whether it's a tendon uh, or a muscle, and try to stimulate some sort of healing response. So you're going to go in there and kind of just aggravate it, hoping that you're going to cause some inflammation and kickstart the body's healing response. And again, it's kind of like, it doesn't really make sense, right? It's like, if that's the case, why don't I just go run really hard on it if I want to just aggravate it and piss <laughs> yeah, it off? Right. <laughs> so it's like, why wouldn't I just go do that? And in fact, sometimes people do do that and it does get better, right? Uh, you hear these crazy stories of people like uh, they're injured and they're just frustrated with it and they're just like, I'm going to do one last really hard run and then I'll go see the PT or something. They do that really hard run and then they're like, hmm, the pain went away. Like, that's weird. And that's just how the body is. That's happened to me, actually. I've done that on more than one occasion. And it it is completely uh, this thing that I can't explain whatsoever. Yeah, it's crazy. Because I think we've all, like, I've experienced that too. A lot of my running friends have experienced that. I have a good friend I was just talking to yesterday uh, that ran with me in college. And he was on the verge of having phys- uh, having surgery on his hip. And he's like, I'm going to do one last run. I'm just going to do crazy long run because it's my last one before surgery. He did that long run, never had pain again, canceled the surgery, and he hasn't had pain since. So it's just weird. Um, but that ties into another important point where it's like sometimes the body does just get better on its own. Or we know that our body heals itself. And sometimes these interventions like dry needling and uh, some of the other passive interventions they just happen to time right, right? Your body's already kind of healing it th- itself. You have this intervention, you get better, and then you attribute the dry needling to why you got better when in fact you were just getting better. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I remember having a very similar conversation with a physical therapist because a, a lot of times what happens is someone gets injured, it takes them a couple days to acknowledge the injury, takes them a couple days to then go see the PT and then they have some dry needling or other intervention, and then a couple of days go by, and then they're healthy, and they're like, oh, it must have been the dry needling, when in fact, it's been a week and a half since their injury, and enough time has gone by that they've actually just healed themselves. And so putting the, you know, the, the reason for why you're healthy on the intervention isn't always necessarily accurate. And, you know, I was kind of laughing when you were describing you know, how dry needling is supposed to be helpful in healing the body. Cause it's like, you're sort of using all the right words, but they're not in the right order. And it's almost like you're trying to sell me something. And I kind of get the vibe that you're not being fully honest. And it's like, yeah, the science just isn't there for something like this. And, and I know at least for me as a coach, I'm not fully convinced. And there haven't been a lot of PTs that I've talked to that are pretty convinced of the effects of dry needling. So it's, it's good to have that reinforced. I, and I, would, I don't want to badmouth uh, dry needling because I do think that all of these interventions, they do have, people do get better from them, right? And so they can be helpful. I just think that often it's the, this idea, the story of having a quick fix the, the story of having somebody fix you is not a helpful story for us to be telling, right? 
And so dry needling can make people feel better. It's, it goes into this bucket. I, so whenever I'm rehabbing somebody, I always talk about two buckets. We have the calm things down bucket and we have the build things back up bucket. And that dry needling can fit into that calm things down bucket for some people. I choose not to ever use it with patients, but I understand why certain people may want to use it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like the way that you put that. And I might have been a little bit too harsh on dry needling. It does no, sound I, I am too. So. Sometimes. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something other, something else that I would love your opinion on, and that is cupping. Another thing that has grown in popularity over the last couple of years. And I'm still sort of in the dark when it comes to the physiology behind cupping and how it's supposed to be helping runners get healthy. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, honestly, with we all it all got popular when Michael Phelps showed up on the starting line with the big bruises on his back and then everybody wanted cupping done, right? Um, and it comes from that ancient... Eastern medicine tradition. Um, as far as it helping runners, I haven't seen it around. So I'm in Salt Lake City and I have not seen people offering it regularly. I'm not entirely familiar with what the claimed mechanisms are. But again, to me, it falls into this category of these passive treatments that offer hope with very little science behind them. Yeah. And when you've mentioned passive treatments a couple times now, and I'd love to explore that because it seems like all the things that might not be as helpful as we would like them to be, it's almost like it's too easy because they are passive, because it doesn't really require too much work on our part. You know, we just lay on the table and the PT does the cupping or the dry needling or maybe the massage, which is what we can talk about next. But can you define a passive treatment and why passive treatments just might not be as effective as other treatments? For sure. Yeah. So passive treatment is exactly what you said. It's I lay on the table and somebody does something to me. I'm a passive participant. I just lay there and it, it puts all the power onto somebody else to fix you. Instead of you taking a responsibility for your injury and for your recovery, it puts it on somebody else and it's like, hey, take care of me. And it's those passive treatments in the physical therapy world, they're under a lot of scrutiny right now because we're all about trying to deliver better care because there's a lot of pseudoscience around these passive interventions. Um, but it's funny because those are the things like when patients call me up, that's what often they're looking for, these passive interventions. And again, it's not that they're entirely bad. They go into that bucket of calming things down. Uh, but when we think that that's what physical therapy is, that it's the dry needling, that it's the cupping or the massage or even the spinal manipulations, then we have a problem because we're not taking ownership of our injury. We're expecting somebody to fix us. And then from the physical therapy side, puts a lot of pressure on me to get you better, right? So now you come in every time and you expect me to do something to fix you. Uh, and again, there's very little science behind that. The active approach is more when you are a participant in that. And that can be education just like this is you and I having a discussion. You're an active participant. You're going to ask questions. I'll answer them. I'll ask you questions. Um, and so 
these active interventions, you're going to get a lot more out of. There's research behind them. Exercise is the, uh, the primary one that we use. We know that if we can get you moving, we're going to have an actual effect on the body. Whereas when I put a needle in you, we don't really know what's happening. Even when I put my hands on you to do some sort of massage, we don't really know the mechanism of what's happening. When we strength train, when we exercise, we do know that this is going to stimulate tissue to change and adapt and get stronger. I love that. And that fits with your bucket of, okay, this is building you up as opposed to this is just calming you down. And I think that's a really helpful framework for thinking about rehabilitating injuries, because after all, you know, the reason why someone gets injured is because, you know, they weren't strong enough to handle a certain training stress, you know, something ended up breaking down. And so we have to build ourselves back up to not only fix the injury, but then also ensure that we can start training again and and start doing the training that we want to do to reach our goals. And and that requires more sort of building up of the athlete. Um, Can we talk about massage? We've mentioned it briefly and, you know, you've, you've sort of discussed a little bit about how, you know, you're not sure what's actually happening in the muscle when you have your hands on someone, but what are some of the promises of massage? And then, you know, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. So I think it depends on the technique that the practitioner is using, right? But there's all sorts of things from just your kind of feel good massage that you get what your wife can do to you, right? Just rubbing your back all the way to something like ART where they're releasing fascia or that's the claim. Um, And then there's the deep tissue work that runners seem to love so much where it's just painful and it hurts. Uh, And then on the other, the extreme, there's that instrument-assisted manual therapy. Are you familiar with that? My sister-in-law is a physical therapist, and she's played with her Graston tools on my legs a couple times, and and I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> yeah, so so that's exactly that's the extreme, right? It's like we're going to use a metal tool or a hard plastic tool and just start scraping things. Uh, and so there's a huge spectrum with that massage or that hands-on manual therapy. Um, and again, all of this stuff, I I lump into that calm things down bucket. Uh, and if, if I strain my back, if I were straining to go lift a weight today and strain my back, I would wake up tomorrow and I would love it. If my wife rubbed my back, it's going to feel really good and it's going to help calm things down. But is it realigning fascia or releasing scar tissue or adhesions? There's no evidence to support that. And there's, I mean, there's so many studies looking at, uh, can we yet yeah, release fascia? No, it's just not a thing that can happen, but it can be beneficial because it can make you feel better. And then we go to the the extreme that you're mentioning, like getting beat up with a, a Graston tool or something like that, where it's just very aggressive. And it's almost like you're trying to just treat pain with pain. We're going to just scrape on this thing. Until you get a big bruise, we're going to try to stimulate some sort of healing response. And again, if we look at the evidence, we they just don't do those studies. It's really weird in the PT world where you see these, I, I guess it's everywhere, but you look at these studies trying to figure out what's happening, right? Because we want to know if I, if, if I want to invest my money to go get trained in dry needling or Graston, that's a lot of money for me to pay. It's a lot of my time. Uh, and I want to know if it works, but when I look up the literature and we try to find out, like, is it doing what they say they do? 
there's no evidence to support it. It's almost as if like, I use an analogy of like the pharmaceutical industry. Let's say I have a, a new blood pressure pill I want to market or I want to start developing. The first thing I want to do is measure, does this lower your blood pressure, right? So I'm going to do a study. I'm going to set it up so that I give you this pill and then we're going to test you and see, hey, did this lower your blood pressure? So in physical therapy or in dry needling or uh, Graston, it would be, I think this happens. I think if I scrape your tissue, it's going to release the fascia. It's going to remove the trigger point. And so I should study that, right? I should say, let's find a trigger point, let's do it, and then let's see if the trigger point's there at the end or the fascia is released at the end. But they don't do those studies. The studies they do instead would be the equivalent of saying, here's this blood pressure pill. Now let's measure, how do you feel? Do you feel better or worse? Oh, I feel better. And then we assume that the blood pressure pill lowered your blood pressure. Do you see what I'm saying? You're not inspiring a lot of confidence in, in a lot of these methods here. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's, it's, the problem is it's hard to do these studies. And so they do, there are some studies for um, the instrument-assisted manual therapy, like the Graston and things like that, where they used rats. And they did show some small changes, but it's never been replicated with humans. Um, and I think it'd just be really hard for them to do that. And it's hard to tease all these things out. And so the best thing that they can come up with is let's measure these surrogate measures of like pain or subjective reports of how they feel with it. Does a treatment like e-stim or electric stimulation is this something that I got very frequently as a collegiate runner because it just sort of made me feel good. You know, it, it felt good on something that was hurting. It felt like it was sort of warming me up. I had it a couple times even before practice just to kind of enhance that warm-up process. Is this another passive treatment that doesn't have a lot of science behind it other than it just makes me feel good? So yes, I would agree that kind of falls into that passive treatment style. And that, you know, for when I first was in, got introduced to physical therapy, working in a clinic, the clinic I worked at, every single patient got the e-stem, right? Every single patient. It was either first thing when they got there, we slapped the pads on them, turned them up, and they sat there for 15 minutes or is at the end. And I hate to say this, but in a lot of places and a lot of clinics, that's just a way for them to bill insurance, some sort of charge for this e-stem and for them to get paid. But there's, because that's gone out of favor, at least I hope in most clinics where we don't use that treatment anymore. Um because yeah, it just, it's literally the theory behind that was like you're stimulating other sorts of nerves to for, so that you don't pay attention to the pain. It's almost like if you hit your, you ever whack your thumb with a hammer or something, and then the first thing you do is go and start rubbing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, you're almost like you're trying to override the pain sensors and start rubbing it and stimulate other nerves so that you don't feel the pain as much. So it's a interesting, uh, theory, but in practice, yeah, it's like very, passive and very little bank for your buck. It seems to me one of the themes that is through all of these passive treatments is this idea that you can manipulate the tissue in some way, whether you're using an aggressive Graston tool or your hand or a dry needling technique or something like, you know, even electrical impulses. And that stimulation is going to cause some healing. And 
I guess what I'm hearing is that it, it doesn't necessarily do that. We need to do something more active to actually spur that healing process. Correct. Yeah. It's like, um, again, it's that like we, th- as a therapist, we want to help people. We really do. That's, that's our job is you come in with injury. We want to provide some sort of relief. And so I think that's why they've all become so popular is it's appealing from both the patient and the clinician standpoint of, I can now offer you something, right? I can help you instantly almost feel a little bit better. And a lot of these things, they all have ritual surrounding them, right? It's like the E-stem, you have to lay down with, we wipe your thigh down with a little uh, alcohol pad. Then we put the, the sticky pad on there. Then we turn the machine up or the dry needling where I got to put my nice gloves on. I got to palpate for the trigger point. There's all this ritual behind it. So it makes it feel like, like a presentation, like you're actually getting this uh, fancy product, right? This fancy thing. Uh, but yeah, there's very little behind it. And I also want to recognize that there is value in runners feeling better, even if there's no studies behind, you know, some sort of treatment method. You know, if a massage just makes you feel good and it helps you relax, what what is the value in just that very subjective feeling in your mind? It's it's huge, yeah. And it's like it's I think that's why it's so prevalent is because it it can provide this short-term, temporarily feel-good thing. Like just like the when my back's cranky and I want that massage. Um and that's huge, right? If I can help you feel a little bit better, for sure. In my mind, though, that the the passive treatments shouldn't be that prominent in the field. For me, if somebody, if you come in and you really want those things, I have great folks that I'll refer you to go see, right? A great massage therapist that I go see personally when I want to. Um, and there's huge value in that. Just like, just like I said, with my back, when it's cranky, I want that, that feel good temporarily, temporary relief. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear that even though I I sort of feel like I've been bad mouthing these treatments, there is value in them. It, It just might not be as valuable as we think it is. And some of the value might be a little bit subjective, but nevertheless, there's certainly uh, real value in, in many of these treatments. And, and I wouldn't turn down a massage if a physical therapist wanted to give me one. <laughs> Heck no. But I think the story that's behind them, I think, is the bigger problem, right? Because it right. creates that dependency. It creates that idea that somebody needs to fix me, right? And that's the problem with Graston, with dry needling. It's like, I it's not something I can do myself. I rely on somebody else. And I think, again, the story behind why you're using, why you would want that is flawed and it's not helpful. And I, I've seen so many patients who do kind of get hooked on it and they're like, I need to go get dry needling again before I can run. I need to get this trigger point released before I can do this race. And I'm a coach as well. And I, I'm coaching an athlete who twice a week she has to go get dry needled or she feels like she cannot continue to run. And that's expensive. I don't know what it's like. You're in Colorado, right? Yeah. Denver. It's yeah. For for her, she's dropping 80 bucks a visit just for a 10 minute dry needling session and doing it twice a week. That's a lot of money. And it's all this story that's that she's wrapped up in that she needs to get these things released when it's like, we there's no evidence to support that 
those things even exist. Yeah, that's an $8,000 a year habit. Yeah, and it's the story that I get that I get worked up about. It's not the the interventions like you said, they they can be helpful. There there's value in that subjective feeling better, right? If I subjectively feel better, there's huge value in it. But if now I'm tied up in this story that I need to get this fascia released or this trigger point gone, that's that's questionable and I think a lot of times it can be pretty harmful. I really love digging into all the shades and gray shades of gray with these kinds of treatment approaches because you know a lot of the times like you said it's it's the story behind it that's problematic and if we can just understand the nuance of these treatments and and different ideas in the world of physical therapy I think we can be much more uh, healthier runners and we can be more productive when we do get those injuries. Um so Jimmy let's talk about what actually does work. Uh, someone comes into your office, someone's injured. I assume we're now going to focus on the other bucket, the building you up bucket. Is that right? Correct. And I think before even, so for me, before we even get there, the most important thing is that you sit down and you tell me your story. You tell me what's been going on from your perspective. You tell me all the things that you've been told, the things that you think are going on, the things that you think are contributing to your pain. and for for me, most of my visits, so that's 60 minutes of just sitting down and doing that, right? A thorough history of what's going on and what you're thinking and your expectations, right? Because if you expect me to be doing dry needling, I need to know that up front and we need to find somebody else for you or let me refer you to somebody else. But that, So that's where it starts. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it really resonates with me because, you know, I had a pretty severe IT band injury myself after my first marathon in 2008. And, you know, I've gotten healthy from it and I've run a bunch of marathons since then and even improved my marathon time. But I still have this nagging sensation that that injury is sort of still there. And since it's been there for such a long time, you know, that first marathon was back in 2008. So I've been sort of dealing with this issue for about 12 years now. It's just really interesting because I, I certainly have a story in my head of my weaknesses, my imbalances, how they happened, how I should be treating it, all the problems that I have. And you're right. If I walked into a PT's office and, and they didn't want to know that history or never dive down into my background and you know the training that I did and, and all that. I just feel like they wouldn't truly understand what was going on with me and, and it would be hard for us to really connect on it. Yeah, for sure. And you, you, you wouldn't trust them, right? You, it would be hard for you to buy into whatever they said afterwards if they didn't take that time to listen to you. Um, and I think that's one of the problems with our profession is that with insurance companies, they're reimbursing less and less. And so that means we have less time to spend with the patients. I choose to work in a model where I'm out of network, so I don't accept insurances. That comes with other flaws or drawbacks, like some people really want to use their insurance, right? Um, but yeah, there's, there's no substitute for sitting down with the patient and hearing that story. You have to. Because then a lot of times you have to address that story and challenge some of those things that the patient believes, right? You just mentioned things like, oh, you, you have this story of you're weak in certain areas, right? Well, maybe maybe that's just a story you're telling yourself. Maybe you're actually really strong, right? Uh, PTs were notorious for telling every single person that they're 
glutes are weak or their hips are weak, right? It's like, uh, I guess there's a pandemic of uh, weak glute syndrome out there with all runners, right? Uh, and maybe that's not true. Maybe we get you on the table and we test it. And I've, I pointed out and I say, hey, Jason, look at that. Your hips are actually really strong, right? Um, maybe there's something else going on here. But yeah, so it starts with that, uh, with that dialogue with the patient. Um, and then, like I said, getting to know their expectations. What do they expect and what do they want to get out of the visit? And then from there, it's, it's like I said, challenging their story if it's an unhelpful story. Because a lot of times the stories we tell ourselves are very unhelpful. If you're anything like me, it's like as soon as I get some sort of injury, like recently my knee starts hurting. First thing I think is like, up, oh, my season's over. Got some big bad injury in there. I'm probably going to have to have surgery, right? All these crazy thoughts that we start thinking. Uh, and it's just because we really value running and we really don't want anything to interrupt our training. And so our mind just goes down this rabbit hole of negativity. And so I think a big part of physical therapy, even before we get to that big build things back up bucket is just to reassure the patient that everything is okay and that their body's going to get better and that there's no big, bad injury. Right. Can we talk a little bit about you challenging athletes, I find that idea very interesting. Um, because, you know, if, if I came to you for, let's just say my IT band injury, you know, uh, a little over a week ago, I ran a trail half marathon, my IT band started hurting in the last couple miles, it was very, um, a lot of elevation changes, a lot of twists and turns and uneven terrain. And, you know, I just felt like that was pretty stressful on my IT band. And I would actually love it if you upended my thinking about my injury, because then it might, ha I might have a better opportunity of, of being healthy. I'm curious what you frequently challenge runners on. Are, are there common or, or sometimes typical ideas that runners have that you frequently have to sort of, you know, uh, dispel or, or, you know, talk these runners off the ledge in some sort of way? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I guess right off the top of my head, the first one that comes to my head is like that my form is what's causing my pain and that I need to correct my form in order for me to get out of pain. Uh, so that can be anything from thinking you overpronate too much to maybe somebody told you your knees dive in too much when you run. And so challenging that with patients is a big thing. It's watching them move, watching them run, and then also uh, pointing out the good things that you do see when you do that. And then if they, let's say they do overpronate a lot or their knees dive in and they go into what we call valgus, it's just educating them that a lot of people in the past may have told them that those were bad things and those were things that needed to get corrected. Um, but if we look at the evidence, there's again, no evidence to support that. And then you can see that when you look at some of these very elite level runners who run and overpronate or their knees dive in and yet they have no pain and they've been doing it their whole lives. And in fact, that same patient that's telling you their previous PT or their friend told them they overpronate too much or something, they've been doing that their whole life and they haven't been in pain their whole life or they haven't been injured their whole life. So that's a big one is form. Um, the strength one is another one where everyone, we all go to PTs and they tell it they're, we're trying to give some sort of explanation to the patient. And that's an easy one is to be like, Oh, your hips are weak. Um, and that's causing this pain. 
and it's causing pain all the way down to your foot for some reason. Your your foot pain is attributed to your weak hips. Um, again, very little evidence to support that hip weakness causes those things, but the act of strengthening can improve that if that makes sense like we can strengthen your hips the hip weak the hip weakness may not improve or the valgus may not improve but you might feel better does that make sense sorry i feel like i'm going off on a bit of a tangent no i love it i i think just understanding more of kind of your thinking on this and, and also that you know you could be strong in some area but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know getting even stronger is, is a bad thing or, you know, that could potentially help, even though it's, it's kind of hard to isolate the, the mechanism there. Correct. Yeah. And so, so I'm just curious, tell me, what's your story with your IT band? Oh, wow. We're going to do a PT appointment on this show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I ran my first marathon in 2008, the New York City Marathon. It went fine. Then when I started to run about a week after the marathon, I think it was my second run back, all of a sudden, sharp pain outside of my left knee, pretty classic presentation of ITBS. And I had to see four physical therapists. It took about six months. Uh, there was a lot of wallowing. Let's, let's call a spade a spade here. I spent a lot of time on the couch watching reruns of House. It was not a good scene for me at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was able to get healthy. Um, through a lot of different types of strength training. And then by adding more strength training to my training, once I was able to get healthy, I was pretty much able to keep that injury at bay for most of, you know, the last 10 years or so. And it really only comes up when I make poor training decisions, you know, typically, you know, why runners get hurt, you know, I, I slack off on my strength training, or you know, I, I do too much too soon before I'm ready for it. You know, I'll go into the mountains and I'll, you know, do some two hour long run when I just really sh probably shouldn't be running that far. And so, you know, I'm at a point right now where I can sort of feel a discrepancy in, in strength and coordination in my left leg. So I feel like my right leg is my dominant leg. My left leg is where most of my injuries, uh, in fact, a vast majority of my injuries over my running career have occurred. So I feel like I've almost favored my right leg because of all those injuries. And I've gotten to the point now where my right leg is rock solid. You know, I don't have to worry about it. Um, it's also interesting because my right leg is the leg where I do pronate more. Uh, my right foot does splay out a little bit more, but that's my healthy leg. And the leg, my left leg, where I think I have better mechanics is the leg that's always getting injured. Um, so that's sort of my story in a nutshell. Um, can you fix me in the next five minutes, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting point. So, uh, I guess I'm more curious about like, what is the story you're telling yourself about why your left leg is the way that it is or why that's like your weak, weaker side? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure I know why my left leg is my my weaker leg. It just feels that way. Um, and it's almost like I believe that because, well, I keep getting injured on that leg. And, and I don't feel like I have the same sort of coordination and strength on that leg. You know, uh, I'm sure if I did an assessment, you know, try to do as many single leg squats on both legs as I could, my left leg would not be the stronger leg. So that's sort of my thinking on, on it. 
Yeah, interesting. And then, so you said recently your IT band did flare up a bit? Yeah, just over a week ago. Yeah, so when you think of IT band pain syndrome, what do you think is going on? What does that make you think is happening at your knee? Hmm, good question. Well, I mean, I, first and foremost, you know, the obvious sensation is, is pain. Uh, I can certainly feel, you know, it's right at the attachment point on the outside of my left knee. Um, and, and, you know, I can sort of feel it all the way up where it connects near my hip into my left glute. And it almost feels like, I don't know, I have a Charlie horse or, uh, an acutely painful area around my glute meat, like right there in my glute. Yeah. And then do you just curious, cause I, people have been told different things, but is there anything you've been told about what's happening? What's causing that pain? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think a, a lot of the times I was told, oh, oh, there's, there's, it's rubbing along, you know, the bone on the outside of your knee. I'm not entirely sure that that's true. Um, I have moved away from the idea that I should be stretching the IT band because the IT band is very thick. It's very tough connective tissue. It's not going to really do much. It's not going to respond to a lot of stretching. So, you know, I don't do a ton of, of stretching or foam rolling of the IT band itself. Uh, but I can certainly feel that it feels better when I foam roll or otherwise massage the areas around the IT band. Yeah. So uh, what you just got into is what I was kind of getting at is that story of uh, what's happening, right? And so we're told all these funky things when we have injuries about what is contributing or causing the pain that we feel. And so the, what you described was that like friction syndrome of IT band rubbing across the bone, right? And that causing pain. And so what I've seen in my practice is a lot of people being told that in the past. And then you can't help but when you go out and run and you feel that pain, that image pops into your head of uh, your tendon, your IT band rubbing across a bone. And then think about, is that going to make you want to keep running? Is that going to make you optimistic about loading that knee or using it, using that leg? I don't think so. If anything, it's going to make me fearful. It's going to make me a little bit apprehensive to using it, to pushing through that pain. And IT bands, a, a interesting one in that, like that was the old hypothesis, this friction syndrome. And that has since been dispelled. It, it does not rub against the, the bone there. It cannot, it's attached above the knee. So it can't rub in the way that people used to describe and also you mentioned you can't stretch it. It literally attaches the length of your femur. So you can't stretch something that's attached to the length of your femur, right? Just doesn't happen. But as you found, it does, it can feel better temporarily when you do things like foam roller kind of massage around that area. Uh, but those are the stories that I'm interested in uncovering and then trying to help the patient work through, get a better understanding and kind of just present the injury in a more optimistic light. And like, you're that leg we do if it's weaker we do need to get get it stronger let's figure out let's change your story get you a little bit more confident in that leg and let's get onto that bucket of building things back up right yeah that gives me a lot of hope and and i feel like a lot of the things that and that i know help like strength training for example um are, are things that i just need to be doing more of um and you know, maybe we can discuss some of those helpful treatments. I know we've talked a lot about treatments that might make you feel better, that are a little bit more passive. Uh, you mentioned strength training as one. 
what are some of the things in that building up bucket that that are actually helpful for running injuries? Yeah, great question. So I think obviously exercise is the big one and that's going to be kind of local to where the actual injury is. So if it's your IT band, it's going to be, let's strengthen up that knee, but then it's going to be like, let's look distally. Let's look at your hips. Let's look down at your foot. Let's kind of make that leg and your body as strong as we can everywhere. But we want to definitely focus locally. We want to focus above and below. Um, so exercise huge. And I think runners, and I think you, you're a proponent of this is like runners, whether we're injured or not, we get into this. Uh, we all have this mindset of lifting weights should be like, I'm going to go to the gym and grab the five pound weights and do three sets of 60 or something. Right. It's like, you're not doing strength training. That's like building more endurance. And so I think in that build things back up bucket starts with what looks like physical therapy exercises, like your little band exercises, your your traditional physical therapy exercises, but then as quickly as we can, we're trying to progress to a actual strengthening program because the whole point of this build things back up bucket is to get your body to respond and to change and to adapt and to get stronger so that it can tolerate more of what you can't do. And for us, that's running, right? We want to be able to tolerate more running. And to do that, we really need to challenge our body. You started this whole conversation talking about uh, the demands that running puts on our body. And it's a lot, right? There's a lot of body weight going through all of our muscles with each step we run. And so the PT exercises quickly need to be transitioned over to strength as soon as we can. I'm a big fan of going with light or lower reps and heavier volume. So like a a three by six or something like that, where you're pushing it pretty hard for those six reps, you're not going to get big and bulky doing that, but we're going to get the tissues, especially tendons to adapt and to get stronger so that they can tolerate the things that they can, they're not tolerating now. So that's the big one in that big build things back up bucket. But then other things are extremely important that we often just gloss over are, are you sleeping, right? What's your stress levels like at home? Are, is your work crazy? Is your four-year-old have COVID and you can't do anything? Uh, <laughs> you are you attacking me right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? It's like those, that's a form of stress and our bodies aren't going to heal as well or aren't going to recover as well. If we're under a tremendous amount of stress, you can have the perfect PT setup. We can uh, reassure you and educate you. But if you're super stressed out, it's going to be a slow road, right? So we always have to address sleep. We have to address, uh, yeah, stress. We have to address diet, making sure you're eating well, um, and just an overall healthy lifestyle. So one of the things I often ask is like, what areas outside of this, right? Outside of this injury, what other areas can you just get healthier at? Are there other areas in your, in your life where you can get healthier? And we kind of work off of that. Yeah, I like that holistic approach where you're not ignoring any aspect of of your general health because that can certainly impact your ability to recover from an injury, adapt to training stresses. I'm interested in the exercise part of treatment. You know, you mentioned uh, a lot of you know strength training and how that's obviously important. What about more aerobic forms of cross training? Are you thinking about cycling, pool running, the elliptical, swimming? 
Is that helpful for runners? You know, I don't really see it as you know, a building activity, but at the same time, I, I can see the value in rehabilitation. Correct. Yeah, you bring up a good point. And it kind of, th- this area, I would call it um, like uh, training modifications, right? We're trying to modify your training in some way. And so it kind of actually fits in both buckets it's the calming things down because we're going to modify your training in such a way that we're not constantly aggravating things. And we're also building things back up because we're keeping you doing the thing you want to do or some, something similar. Um, so yeah, I think if at all possible, I want people running, right? So it may be half of what they're used to. It may be 25% of what they're used to. It might be a walk jog, but I, I often want to try to keep that in as some in some form and often it's it's a very easy jog i always tell my patients that when you go do this you're not thinking about training we're not building fitness this is rehab and this is just keeping you active and keeping you moving Uh, because it's important to know yeah our bodies are designed to heal while we move that's how we evolved right if if think if we were back in the day the caveman if we had an injury and we just sat in bed all day our tribe would leave us or the the tiger would come eat us right it's like we're designed to to heal while we're moving um and so when it comes to if the patient cannot run they cannot do a walk jog then it's i don't care what it is but i want them doing some sort of aerobic exercise always yeah and often it's patient preference right so if you have a background, so I live in Utah and it's, it's winter's coming up and a lot of people backcountry ski. And so that is a big aerobic component to that. And so if you can't run, but you can uphill ski, heck yeah, we're going to go do some laps and kind of keep you moving that way. If you live in California and you love riding your bike and it's beautiful year round and you can do that, we're going to ride your bike, but we're going to keep trying to always test out the running when we, when we can, right? Because I do think it's, if that's what you want to get back to doing, we're going to keep trying to get back there. So it sounds like, you know, the blanket, I'm just going to take two weeks off or I'm going to take a month off is like the opposite of what we should be doing if something starts to hurt. It, I mean, it never works. I can't tell you how many patients I see that they're like, yeah, this has been going on for, I don't know, two months. And I took two weeks off a month ago and it was exactly the same. So I just started running again and now it still hurts. Because it's like they're, they're, yeah, they're trying to just think that if I just do nothing and I rest, it's going to get better, but it just doesn't happen. I mean, it does occasionally, right? We, it will rarely, but that's the exception, not the rule. Right. We shouldn't plan our training around the exception. Um, and so I'm listening to you talk about strength training and, and, and really about, okay, let's do the PT exercises, the band work some of the body weight stuff, but let's move fairly quickly into the weighted exercises that are really going to help us build strength. Let's try to do as much running as we can. If we can't do running, let's do some other forms of aerobic exercise. I'm assuming because motion is lotion, as they say. And it it seems like uh, what we're really talking about is load management. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept and how it relates to rehabbing an injury? Because I think it's really important here. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to be pretty like general with this because each area of the body will be a little bit different, but overall it's like load management is huge with most injuries. And we know that 
especially tendons, they love load and they need load. They need heavy load for them to adapt and to get stronger and to get out of pain. Uh, and so load management for me is, all right, we're going to take a step back. We're going to start super easy and we're going to find where that spot on the spectrum is. That's just kind of getting to your limit, right? So let's say you can do 10 single leg squats. And on that 11th one, you start to feel pain. We're going to start at 10 and we're going to just keep poking into it. We're going to try to do 11. If 11 hurts, we're going to do 10 again, but we're going to poke up to it all the time. Same thing with running too. It's like 10 minutes hurts. We're going to get up to 10 minutes, poke into it and then see how you respond. But we have to respect it, right? We have to respect the pain. We're not just going to push through it. That's why it's load management. We're finding that load that you can tolerate and trying to progress from there. But I like this analogy of poking the bear. It's like you're allowed to poke the bear. You can poke into some pain, but you're not going to smack it around. You'd just be stupid to do that. I like this idea of having a testing kind of mindset when it comes to treating an injury and getting healthy from it. Because it seems like you always have to sort of test how the body responds to a certain training stimuli. And I know from a coaching perspective, you know, when I'm working with an athlete who's kind of, you know, who has been injured, but, you know, they're clear to run, they, they can run a little bit. I'm always testing what they can do in their training. So first it's, you know, can we go for a run without any pain? The next thing is, can we run two days in a row without any pain? And maybe the other thing is, all right, let's do some relatively easy pickups, you know, uh, I'll call them strides light in, you know, a run and, and sort of see how that feels. And so it's this constant, you know, almost like a two steps forward, one step back, let me see how this feels. And then we'll kind of sort of almost uh, change the approach based on how you're feeling. And it seems like that's a similar approach you take in, in your office when rehabilitating a runner from an injury. Yeah, 100%. I think I use the words, uh, this is all trial and error. So I think every time I'm wrapping up with the patient, we're reviewing their exercise, we're reviewing their return to run program. And I always say that this is trial and error. This is where we're going to start. We're going to see how you respond to this. And then we're going to adjust accordingly. Sometimes this is exactly right. And this is what we need to do. And you're going to see some great improvements. Other times we, we didn't, we didn't do it right, right? Something was too much or it was too much too soon or it wasn't enough and you're not responding. And so it's always that trial and error. We test it, we see how you respond and then we adjust accordingly. Before we wrap, Jimmy, I'd love to talk a little bit about training modifications. And you know, one of the reasons why I was so excited to chat with you is you know, not only are you a PT, you're a coach and you have a very comprehensive background as a runner yourself. And, you know, we can sort of talk about the PT's approach, and then we can also talk about the coach's approach and, and how they work together. When you have an athlete who's, who's mostly healthy from an injury, and then they start to train again, do you make any modifications to their schedule that would potentially help prevent the same injury from recurring? And what might some of those modifications be? Yeah, a great question. So I think the big thing is, uh, keeping a strength routine going, especially through the early season. And for me, if you've been coming, if you've been rehabbing an injury, it's, we're going to keep some basic PT strengthening exercises that are loading the injured site directly, right? So 
if it's your IT band, we're going to do a strength training program, but then maybe towards the end of it, we're going to add in a little PT session so that you're keeping that PT style exercise in your routine throughout the season. That's kind of the biggest one, making sure that they are doing strength training. I'm a huge advocate for some sort of strength training throughout most of the season. Um, I know I, I, I focus mostly in like the ultra running world. Um, and I know there's some controversy about the benefit of strength training for ultra runners. I just find it's valuable. It's, if you're an elite athlete and you're getting paid to do it, maybe you could spend your time doing other things. But for most of us, we're going to see a lot of benefit from strength training regularly. Um, and then other modifications outside of that is just kind of be a smart coach and don't do something stupid with your athlete. Don't, <laughs> don't throw a 12 mile progression run at them when they haven't done more than an hour long run or something. Right. Uh, I think it's just being smart, gradually loading the body, not doing too much too, too fast. And then really, really encouraging your athlete to talk and communicate with you. As soon as something little comes up, try to address it. Uh, if they need to, talk often in like those little things. If you can catch them early, it's just a short conversation with a PT or somebody letting them know what's going on. I, I'm like, I love to, I, I have people call all the time for 10 minute consults. And it's like super simple. Something's bothering you. Just do this. Right. Um, but I think that's the outside of strength training. The biggest thing is just having a good line of communication with your athlete so that they feel comfortable and, they have the means to communicate with you, right? Whether it's cell phone or, or email. Yeah, I, I love this. And I, I think one of the big ideas coming from this conversation is that, you know, the, the passive treatment techniques can maybe make you feel better and they certainly have their place. But the main issues that we should be dealing with are making sure that we're still active, trying to run as much as we can, given our pain issues at the time and making sure that we're, modifying our training, doing strength training, and really focusing on all the things in that building up bucket uh, that are more impactful than the passive techniques. And, and I really appreciate this perspective because I think it, it makes it easy for runners to understand, to, to really wrap their heads around, okay, this stuff might be nice to do, but this stuff over here is actually really, really helpful to do. And it's much better for me. Yeah, I always use the analogy of like a, a, a meal. It's like the meat and potatoes of what gets you better is that build things back up bucket. The calm things down bucket is just like the seasoning that goes on top, makes it a little taste a little bit better, right? But the the meat and potatoes of what gets you better is that build things back up bucket. Yeah, I love it. It's almost like, okay, fine, I'll do the strength training if you're going to give me a massage later. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the, the big point I'd like to get across is just like question those passive treatments, right? Don't think they're the end all be all. And, uh, yeah, just work hard. Like know that take ownership of your injury, right? Get yourself better. Don't rely on somebody else to fix you because your body is amazing at healing. Your body is amazing at adapting and it will get better if you kind of point it in the right direction and you can do that yourself. I think this is a great place to close. Jimmy, thanks so much for your time and your expertise. I, I really like this perspective that we talked about today, and I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of runners. Uh, and if folks want to learn more about 
your work and what you're doing out there, can they connect with you online somewhere? For sure. Yeah. So on Instagram, it's Redefine Physio. Uh, my website is redefine-pt.com. And then email is easy too. It's jimmy at redefine-pt.com. Excellent. I'm going to have links to all this great stuff in the show notes on the Strength Running site. But until then, Jimmy, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. And there it is, friends. Thank you for listening to this wide-ranging conversation on injury treatments with the ever-thoughtful Jimmy Picard. You can catch him in Salt Lake City at Redefine Physical Therapy and Performance, or find him on Instagram and Twitter at Redefine Physio. We have links to all this and more on strength running, including our free injury prevention email series. I discuss common injury pitfalls runners find themselves in, how you can avoid them, case studies, workout routines, and a lot more. You can sign up at strengthrunning.com prevention. And finally, I'm so grateful for our sponsors. If you get value from the podcast, please support us by supporting them. Inside Tracker is one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies in the country. They were founded back in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones like cortisol to testosterone and vitamin D, can all help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or optimally training. But what I think is the best part is that they give you personalized optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers and then a whole host of ways to improve them through both diet, lifestyle, and exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them and the process is simple, it's easy, and it's very eye-opening. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see their new Black Friday offer. You can get $200 off their ultimate plan and free inner age test with code STRENGTHRUNNINGGIFT, or you can get 25% off site-wide. Check out all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by Elemental Labs, my favorite electrolyte company. If you have a high sweat rate, or if you're like me and you just have very salty sweat, it's important to dial in your hydration. Elemental Labs is offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight electrolyte packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping, which is just five bucks here in the U.S. Now, Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks that doesn't have any sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. And lately, I'm <laughs> feeling like I'm cheating on the citrus flavor, which is my former favorite, because watermelon is fast becoming my salt of choice. I've been to running camps, I hand out element salt to my friends here in Denver, and I send it to giveaway winners on Instagram. And everybody loves the amazing taste of element salt. So for those athletes who might be running five or more days per week, training for a half marathon or longer, or outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement can help your hydration and recovery. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You can try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for the fall season.
All right, that's our show today, runners. Don't forget to catch the show notes on strengthrunning.com and you can sign up for our injury prevention series at strengthrunning.com slash prevention. You can also email me anytime at support at strengthrunning.com or if you want to pay it forward, leave a review for the show and Apple Music. Thanks for listening and we'll be in touch soon. 